Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn and how we teach and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. This is episode 125, Dealing with Anxiety. Students tell us quite often that their test anxiety is making everything too hard, and and we get it. Anxiety sucks. But here's the thing about anxiety. It's a feeling that tells us you're going to die. It's an old emotional response to actual danger, and it used to keep us safe. Nowadays, we don't live in nearly as much danger as we did before civilization happened, but the lizard brain, the lower brain, that primitive part of the brain that only reacts and doesn't think, it interprets anything that feels scary as a deadly threat, which is one reason why your brain sees a quiz or an exam and reacts with, this is going to kill me. In episode 57, we talked about overthinking and how it can lead to anxiety. Let's just go over what we know about how anxiety works on the physical, biological level. The test feels like a big deal, and you start worrying. Then your body responds. Start breathing more quickly. Your heart rate speeds up. Your muscles tense up. Maybe you even get lightheaded. All of these physical symptoms are the kinds of symptoms that we evolved to have when we saw a threat that could kill us back before we were civilized and living in cities. You see a lion, and your body gets ready to do one of four things, bite, flee, freeze, or fawn, although fawning might be specific and might have only developed once we lived in large groups. Back when we ran into lions on the regular, these physical symptoms helped us get ready to fight, run, or hide from the lions. I don't think too many of us were saying, nice kitty. (laughs) These reactions kept us alive. And essentially, anxiety's job is to signal your lower brain, the non-thinking, purely reacting brain, to say, hey, we're in danger. Then your lower brain, specifically a part called the amygdala, reacts to the anxiety by putting you at the ready to fight, flee, or freeze. And your upper brain, the thinking, reasoning brain, starts searching for a solution. But the fact is, an exam does not put you in danger. Neither does a big assignment. It just feels like it does. And what does your lower brain do? It puts you in an elevated, alerted, physical state. Adrenaline starts pumping, and you get really, really hyper-aware of your surroundings. And like we said, your breathing speeds up, your heart rate speeds up. You, you feel like you're electric. Everything is now go, go, go. The problem is, your upper brain translates those physical feelings into a thought. That thought is usually something like this. If I just find all the right answers, everything will be okay. But if I don't, then awful things will happen. So let's start out by saying this. Your brain, both the lower and the upper, is a liar. Mm -hmm. Your brain developed to protect you from threats. But the threats we face these days aren't tigers and lions. They're more like a bad grade or failed class or damage to our reputation or disappointing our parents. And let's point this out. None of those will kill you. But your brain reacts as though they are top-level, life-threatening emergencies. That part of your brain that reacts to your tension about something that's going to be demanding, like an exam or a big project or a presentation, it can't tell the difference between an exam and a tiger. 
it thinks you're under attack. It thinks you're going to die because it sucks at nuance. For the lower brain, which is what develops first, the train of thought, such as it is, goes like this. I'm breathing fast. That means physical stress. That means I'm under threat. That means I'm going to die. I have to fight, run away, become invisible, or make the threat happy so I won't die. Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. But the facts are, you're not under threat and you're not going to die. Most of what your lower brain thinks you need is not relevant anymore. And if your upper brain is getting in on the action, it's acting on faulty information. What do we call an alarm based on faulty information? A, a false alarm. So false alarms obviously are junk, but your brain doesn't know that. So here's some ways to deal with anxiety when it inevitably shows up, because it will. Feel it and don't resist it. This may sound weird, but if we don't fight a feeling, it actually goes away more quickly than if we fight it. Just sit with it, observe it, and you might find that it actually becomes funny to you to see how your brain is running around like a cartoon character. You know, I think of it as Looney Tunes. The cartoon character that is my brain is going, ah, test, I'm going to die, it's a tiger. And it's like, no, it's not, this is really amusing. Okay, you may find that you start, get, you start cracking up because watching your brain go crazy can be very funny. Be aware that no feeling can kill you no matter how scary it feels. It's just anxiety. It's just your lizard brain freaking out. Another thing you can do is reframe that terrified, anxious feeling as excitement. You're not scared of the exam. You're excited to show what you know. The physical feeling of being scared and the physical feeling of being excited are actually really, really similar. I mean, think how you feel when you're on a roller coaster. You're probably equally part scared and excited, right? But if you were pressed to say, what is the difference between the scared part and the excited part? That might be difficult to suss out, right? So see if you can convince your upper brain that you're actually excited, not terrified. And sometimes this has actually worked for me when anxiety is pressing in on me and I can't find any reason for anxiety. So I just decide, okay, I must be excited about something instead. And I pick something to be excited about. It works really well. It's crazy, but it works really well. Write down what you're feeling physically as if you're explaining it to someone who can't experience emotion. Where are you feeling the anxiety? What's going on in your body? How's your brain interpreting those feelings? Try to see it as just a physical sensation in your body. And the last one, and one that my students say really helps them, is do block breathing. So I'll demonstrate that now. You're going to breathe in for a slow count of four. So one, two, three, four. Then hold for one, two, three, four. Now breathe out for one, two, three, four, and hold for one, two, three, four. And then do that cycle four times. And when you breathe in, do it through your nose. When you breathe out, blow it out like you're blowing out candles on a birthday cake. That will help your body calm down. And when it calms your body down, the amygdala cancels the red alert. So if you calm the body down by slowing down your breathing, which also slows down your pulse, your amygdala says, okay, we're not breathing fast anymore. There must not be danger anymore. We can chill out. We can cancel the alert. And that allows you to calm down your brain by calming down your body. So really block breathing, it's, it's nearly miraculous. I've had students tell me if they learned nothing else from my class, they're so glad they learned that. 
because then they use it in other classes and they find, oh, I don't have to be freaked out before my calculus exam. I could just breathe slowly and then I'm fine. So our experiences with anxiety in school, one of the ways that I remember dealing with anxiety is by developing routines. And admittedly, that's led to some superstitions because why not? But going back as far as junior high for me, I remember getting really, really bad test anxiety in presentations. I'd want to throw up or poop like I was on horse dewormer, but I could control it a little by breathing in deeply and slowly. At the time, I didn't know about block breathing, but I do remember learning that our heart rate was related to how fast we breathe, and being taught that breathing slow was a way or a trick to slow down. I'd also make sure to wear something of one of my favorite teams because that was part of my superstition. I'd also have a piece of chocolate before the test or the presentation for sweet luck. And while I'm pretty sure the shirts didn't make a difference in my scores, good or bad, developing that routine helped me relax a little bit. And that little bit of relaxation took the edge off any test anxiety. And as someone with anxiety, I can attest to the block breathing method. It really physically short circuits that false alarm. And then I can focus on what I need to do. And I'll also say that reminding myself there's no tiger it often goes a long way toward getting that overzealous amygdala to stand down and back off. The way students can use the advice in this episode, being aware of how your amygdala hijacks your brain is half the battle. You can tell yourself, this is my lower brain freaking out, but there's no tiger, it's only a test. Do the block breathing to physically reset your amygdala's hyper alert. And remember, you can do block breathing during the test too. Or tell yourself you're excited and put that excited energy toward doing well on whatever it is that scared you. Now, how teachers can use this advice is first, be aware of this issue. Lots more students today are suffering from anxiety disorders. Being kind about it will help them a lot more than being stern or being a stickler for the rules. Maybe have the entire class take three minutes before they start an exam to breathe. Block breathing would be good calm down and focus. And I know right now with COVID, this may mean everybody step outside the classroom so we can be outdoors and breathe so that we don't stick COVID in the classroom air. So do that. Helping students recognize their anxiety, recognize where it comes from and realize how to deal with it. That's probably going to go a long way in students doing better on exams and feeling less stressed about your class. And that's really a goal we should all be striving for. Stress can interfere with learning. If our goal is for students to learn, we should be finding ways to reduce their stress. So that's what we have for you in episode 125. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Android. We're hosted on Blueberry.com. And also, we'd really appreciate it if you could write a review of this podcast for us on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next week for episode 126 when Adam and I will talk about resisting distractions by playing the tape. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learningmadeeasier. We look forward to seeing you next week.